Hi, everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Pensions and Investments, where my guests and I will bring you up-to-date information on pension funds, securities class action litigation, and all matters related to your investment portfolio and shareholder recoveries. I am a Tara Torsky, securities class action attorney in New York City. And I'm here today speaking with Rupert Ball, co-founder and chief executive officer of the Disruption House, a company whose mission is to assist fintechs and financial institutions to accelerate their discovery of and engagement with each other on a global basis. The Disruption House partners with over 50 global and regional banks and asset managers on their mission to de-risk and fast track new technology adoption across the global financial service industry and beyond. Hi, Rupert, welcome to my show. How are you today? Yeah, very well, Atara. Good morning to you over in New York. Yes, I'm so happy to have you here. So I really want you to tell me, I, I did a, a nice intro for you. Like I, I love what you do. I know you and I have previously spoken, but I would love you to just tell me in plain, simple English, like what does your company, the Description House, actually do and how can it be a benefit to my institutional clients? Okay, fantastic. So, I mean, I think what we what we do in simple terms is we help uh, uh, asset owners, asset managers, uh, banks understand counterparty risk in early stage high growth businesses. So what we've seen over time is that um, innovation tends to come from high, highly scaled and highly invested in businesses. And for a long time, they don't have a balance sheet. And so that presents a challenge to the traditional procurement processes where uh, most things start with a credit check. And because there is no credit, you have to start with a capability check. So what we've done is we've gone into academic research and spoken with many uh, industry experts, many entrepreneurs who built their businesses to understand what the most successful business leaders have done to build an early stage business. And we've modeled it. And because we modeled it, we can benchmark people against the model, which helps people to understand where they are on the journey and what they can do to build their businesses better and increase their chance of surviving and growing to becoming hugely successful public businesses, if that's what they want. Okay, so now funds and institutional clients, right? What, what do we care about? The highest returns, the lowest risk. So in what ways are you actually looking to help asset managers? Like what's new on the horizon in terms of new technology for asset managers? So I, I think, I mean, it, it, it varies enormously depending upon their start point. So I, I think a lot, of, um, a lot of institutional asset managers are just really starting to come to the digital age. I think they, uh, the, there are many drivers for that. Um, some of which are really the the, the growth of uh, ETFs and and the shrinking of active mandates, uh, and therefore actually the um, the asset managers are having to improve their distribution capabilities. They're having to invest in um, their own research, and some of their own research is now uh, quantitative and and using uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. So I think you know what what you're seeing is a uh, the start of a, a, a well, not start, yeah, the continuation of a digitization journey where asset managers are trying to be uh, more productive, more efficient, and more profitable. Because I think we've seen uh, a lot of margin collapsing because of the rise of uh, passive investing as opposed to active investing. Mm-hmm. So, are you saying that um, asset managers are going to, or are they already starting to rely on artificial intelligence to actually tell them? how to invest and in what to invest? I think it varies. And, and again, I, I think um, uh, hedge funds, so um, uh, probably are, are you know, greater users of uh, all forms of advanced technology than traditional long-only managers. Um, because I think that in many instances, the, 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 um, 
running strategies that require huge amounts of, uh, of data and machine power in order to, uh, to take advantage of, of, of market dislocations or, or market movements. I think, you know, one of the, one of the sort of challenges in, in uh, I suppose, conducting research is just the, the huge amount of information that is out there. So I think what we've seen is that um, asset managers are starting to use artificial intelligence and natural language processing to read huge amounts of publicly available documentation and I mean, in some instances, it, it can be looking at a, a theme like I want to invest in artificial intelligence. So actually, you want to screen all the filings that firms are making about what they're doing with artificial intelligence. So in some instances, it, it can just be for identifying new firms who are doing things with new technology that they can invest in. In other instances, I think it's about improving uh, either the, the, the models that they are using to, to price or, or make decisions about investing in, in certain products or companies uh, and in other instances I think it's actually just more about some um, probably simpler forms of automation robotic process automation where they're just removing manual processes which uh, which which take out errors and take out costs right so it's interesting like I think it makes sense to use artificial intelligence in, in some areas but a lot of areas you know as an attorney representing you know institutional clients like I, I kind of pride myself on always saying to them you know, at the end of the day, like I have actual human eyes on your portfolio. And I think that there is no substitute for that, knowing that there's a, a person with actual intelligence, with an actual expertise in the area that's actually looking through your portfolio. And, and so I wonder, like, tell me the other side of that. Well, I, I think in, in uh, probably in the early stages, it, it, it's more about augmentation than it is about replacement. Uh, and, and, and so I, I think the augmentation, what I was describing about uh, consuming you know, large amounts of information in order to uh, screen companies that might fit in with the strategy that's been designed by a manager and is sort of human led, is a way of actually enabling a manager to cover more ground uh, we, you know, with sort of time and cost efficiency rather than throwing lots and lots of uh, junior interns or, or, or recent graduates at, at that kind of um, uh, mass information filtering. And I, and I think to some extent, uh, machines don't get tired the way humans do. So, so I think for, for some of the more mundane, repetitive tasks, uh, artificial intelligence can be an enhancer to, uh, to, 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 to smart people. And I think in, in other instances, uh, artificial intelligence is supporting machines that can see faster than the human eye. So, so I think, you know, in, in, in high frequency markets and, and fast moving markets, uh, I think, you know, machines are already um, doing an awful lot that human beings aren't doing. So I think artificial intelligence is, is enhancing what has already gone to it. I think you said that, well, it's augmentation, not replacement. And I think that when you look at it that way, and when you understand how you can actually work in concert with AI, you're really in a good place because you do need both humans and AI. So I, I like the augmentation of it. Are you finding resistance on the part? I know, you know, banks traditionally are very traditional. So is that like a lot of resistance that you're encountering or are they slowly coming over? Well, I, I think it varies. And, and I think um, probably as we all know very well, uh, there's no such thing as an institution. There are people within institutions. And so actually, I think, you know, as is, as is always the case, uh, it's about finding individuals who, um, who, who want to uh, embrace new technology and work with it early. And then I think it's about 
helping those individuals work with their firms in order to bring new technology into the firm in a manner that is uh, risk managed and, and consistent with the risk frameworks that, that the firms have. So, so I think this comes back to the reason why we, um, why we exist. I mean, when, when, we, when we started, the reason for our name, the Disruption House, is we thought that we would be a, a vehicle to help incumbents understand the, you know, the, the threat from fintechs. You know, would they disrupt them? Would they replace them? Would they do all these things? And actually, as we, we looked into it, what we, what we realized is that actually the, the real challenge that incumbents have is, is not the fintechs per se, it's their ability to respond to it by working with early stage businesses, because these early stage businesses have high failure rates. Um, so your, 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 um, your pension uh, fund clients will undoubtedly have elements of their portfolio invested in private equity or venture capital, where they're looking to get higher returns by, um, by investing in private companies before they become the next Uber or, or whatever is the next unit that, uh, that they want to get exposure to. Um, but, the, uh, but the challenge with investing in those stage businesses is that they have high, high failure rates. And so uh, you know, the world's best venture capitalists make a lot of money for their, uh, for their investors, but they also lose an awful lot of companies on the way. So the, yeah, the, there's a, yeah, and in the earlier stage, we believe there's something like 70% of businesses that get funded at Series A don't get to Series B, which means that actually if a venture capitalist is knocking on the door of a bank or an asset manager saying, hey, I've just invested in this great Series A company, I think it's going to be the future of whatever. Uh, the buyer is looking and going, but, but yeah, you're a great fund manager, but even you lose 70% of your portfolio. So how do I know whether this is a, you know, a survivor and in the 30% that's going to go big or in the 70% that's going nowhere. And if you're, if you're a regulated firm, which financial institutions are, the regulators want you to have operational resiliency. That's most important. What they don't like is failure in the financial system because that creates panic uh, in, in the wider economy and, and, and snarls everything up. So the regulated firm is kind of going, well, if you as an investor don't know who's going to win, how am I supposed to know who's going to win? So, so that's what we help people do, because we're not trying to go unicorn hunting, which is hard and which is what investors get paid for. What we're about is actually, are these people going to be good counterparties? Are they going to partner with you well? Are they going to build a business? Is it going to be sustainable? Is it likely to be there in five years time? And the answer to that is cannot be found in the balance sheet because they're still early stage businesses. The answer to that is found in the skills and the capabilities of the management team and ultimately whether they know what they're doing. You know, the world's best engineer may be the world's best engineer, but also the world's worst entrepreneur. And actually, uh, the fact that they built something fantastic doesn't mean it's going to become a business. And in fact, very often, it's not the best technology that wins. It's the best business wrapper that takes adequate technology to market and helps it to grow and scale. Right. It's someone with vision, not, not just skill and expertise. So what metrics are you actually using to determine who's going to be in that 30% and who's going to be in the 70%. Yeah, so we, we look at a, a, a broad broad array of, of metrics. And, and I think we're also actually introducing some new metrics, which are looking at the uh, environmental, uh, social and governance side of things as well, because actually increasingly we see that uh, that's going to be critically important to companies to grow well, because it will help them access capital that is ring fenced for, uh, for the new green economy. Uh, but it's also uh, the millennial generation want to work for companies that are doing good as well as making money. And increasingly, 
um, buyers are wanting to make sure that the people they're buying from have great policies when it comes to you know anti-slavery, anti-bribery, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think you know wh wh where we started was we thought that the, uh, the, the the I suppose the eight most important factors to look for uh, are well, the business model, the customer engagement, the team management, and the leadership diversity and and overall governance and financial management on on the business side. And on the technology side, it's really how well do they design, build, deploy, and support that um, you know, the, the the software, which which might be deployed software or it might be a SaaS solution. And then when we come to the ESG side of things, we're really looking at the environmental impact. This is increasingly key because ninety eight percent of a financial institution's environmental impact comes from its supply chain. So I think we saw um, some really uh, interesting real-world evidence of this last week or maybe the week before when Elon Musk announced that Tesla was no, gonna, no longer going to accept Bitcoin because of his worry about the environmental impact of, um, uh, of, of Bitcoin because of it, it's so energy intensive to mine and much of the mining is taking place in countries in the world that are using coal to fire the power stations. So I think you know, we... Um, uh, we saw. I just. I have a question. I don't mean to interrupt you, but sure. isn't, isn't the whole point of Bitcoin that it's digital? So I'm I'm confused. So maybe yeah, other people it, are it, as it well. is. But actually, you're quite right. But actually, the question is because it's digital. Uh, it's actually it, it is made electronically. So where you, you know, where that power comes from has a huge impact ah. on the. Um, uh, yeah, I suppose the cost, the environmental cost of producing it. So so Bitcoin is. Um, unfortunate in that its protocol is what's called proof of work. And that is very, very compute intensive. And because it's very compute intensive, it requires lots of electricity. Now, as it happens, many of the uh, most advanced miners of Bitcoin happen to be in countries like China, where virtually all the electricity is, is, is produced by coal-fired um, power stations. So, so there was some very interesting research that we, we came across that said for every $10,000 increase in the price of Bitcoin, 20 million cubic tons of carbon dioxide is released in the atmosphere. Wow. So in comparison... And that's just because it's made electronically? Yeah, because it's wow. made electronically. And it's using compute power to make it. And, um, and then actually there's also, uh, it, it requires... Um, quite a lot of compute power to, to, to buy and sell it as well and, and transfer yeah, and, and, and you know, right, right to, the, uh, to the ledger. Um, so not only that, because it requires uh, heavy uh, computing power, it also means it's actually not very accessible to many of the world's poorest who actually don't have that same compute power. So it's not only bad for the environment, it's actually bad on the social side as well, because actually it's only really uh, accessible to uh, those people who can afford really expensive compute power. So it's socially exclusive as well. So it kind of, it, it kind of fails on two of the, the, the three pillars of E, S, and G. And, and the, uh, the other bit of the research that, that we're saying, which I think is probably why Elon Musk uh, wisely made his pronouncement, is that all the Tesla cars ever made and produced and sold in the market have so far only removed something like three and a quarter million tons or three and a half, sorry, three and a half metric, cubic metric tons of carbon dioxide so far. So, so, so that kind of implies that the, uh, 
you know, the, the 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 swings that we've seen in in Bitcoin's price since uh, since since uh, um, Elon Musk first made his trade has actually done more damage to the environment than all the cars he's ever produced. Now he's a great person, and I think he suddenly realized that and thought, I can't be associated with this, right? But 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 it's when so it counter to everything he's trying to do, <laughs> exactly. So it's it's contradictory. So. I think like you just now, he's been on an education journey, realizing that Bitcoin per se is, is, is kind of bad on the sort of E side, certainly, and, and probably as he thinks it through the S, S side as well. So, you know, the, and, and the consequence of uh, Elon Musk going against it, and then obviously the Chinese government going against it as well, means that Bitcoin's price, I think, dropped by a third. You know, now, if you're, if you're an asset owner owning that stuff, that's, that's painful really right and and i think it's just that lack of awareness about these things and then so i think you know what we see our role to be is helping people understand that what on the surface looks good is not below the surface necessarily good in the same way that you want it to be now clearly if you understand the risks you can um make the investments and then you know with risk comes reward but i think the the the, the challenge that we see is that so often the risk isn't understood and therefore um it's kind of it has huge potential downside uh, and 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 what we're out to do is to try and help people understand the risk that they can manage it better yeah i mean i think it's fascinating i want i want to go back for a second to talk about a cryptocurrency because i think there's such a place now of enigma right like i think people think it's this amazing wonderful newest way to you know transfer currency but like what is it really and is it is it does it have lasting power in your opinion because of some of the things you've just enumerated well i, th I think that there are um there's another protocol which is called uh, which is called proof of stake as opposed to proof of work and proof of stake is is much less uh damaging the environment so so i think you know so i i'm i'm not an expert and i, I think um uh bitcoin I mean, basically, its price will hold up as long as people want to hold it. And you know, the the, the, the I read recently, and I don't know that it, it costs something like sixty thousand dollars of electricity to make a new Bitcoin. Now, uh, at the moment, at thirty thousand dollars per Bitcoin, whatever it was, you know, when I when I last looked, it's not economic to make new Bitcoin. So it's only kind of economic to trade the ones that are there. So I think you know what people will do is they they will you know, people will trade anything if they think that there's volatility in it and it has a direction, but you know what underpins it is is ultimately economic fundamentals and it and if if it's um, prohibitively expensive to produce and no one wants to produce it because of the carbon impact, then I think it will you know it, it will be under pressure price pressure for quite some time as a value. However, what's also clear is that uh, an awful lot of people are disillusioned with um, with some of the conventional investments that are out there. And, and whether that be because with negative interest rates, it actually costs you uh, money to hold money in banks in Europe. And so therefore, actually, people are looking for alternative stores of, of, of wealth. And gold has quite a high storage cost. So I think, you know, there, there is a um, art is, you know, um, is another store of wealth, but again, it, it's fairly liquid. So, so I think there is undoubtedly a place in the marketplace for uh, stores of value that are digital. Um, but which one wins out is is clearly uh, going to be an important factor. But I, I do think that what we've seen with Bitcoin is that uh, the ones that are going to win are going to uh, not be ignoring the environmental and social impact right. that they have.
Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I think that, right, that's one of the most important things is that we make sure that we protect our environment and, and that we also protect our social structure. So these, these are important things. And I think you make such a great point in saying, you know, we're, we're looking for alternative investments and the market has to give us those and we will find them, but they have to be socially responsible and environmentally responsible. Don't you agree? Yeah, I do. And, and I think also just, um, uh, I, I was reading uh, something uh, the other day that, that basically the uh, something like 50% of the workforce are millennials and, and they care about this, not just from the perspective of the things they buy, but actually increasingly, you know, how their firms behave in, in what their firms are sourcing. And I guess ultimately it won't be long before they're also asking the uh, pension trustees the same questions. And I think, you know, as we see ever increasing amounts of pension funds going into private capital, which are much more opaque than the public markets, there's going to be an ever greater need to have that transparency, if you like, in order to, to, to help pension trustees uh, you know, communicate to the, to the future pensioners that the assets are in good hands and that you know, they're, they're the, 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 the private companies that are growing are growing well um, and, and doing the right thing. So I, I think there's a huge, huge shift in mindset that is just beginning to come, which is being driven by uh, the next generation that, that's coming that's through. True. Yeah, just having, you know, even younger children, school-age children, I see it with them that children and, and the schools that they're in are just um, really conscious environmentally and socially. And that's, that's a good thing for our future. So that's great. Well, it was really great having you on. I think this is a fascinating company that you have, a fascinating uh, topic that we're discussing. So I, I'd love to be able to tell our audience where they can find out more about you and, and your website. So just give us those details, please. Sure. So um, if you go to our website, it's www.thedisruptionhouse.com, for one word. And I'm rupert.bull at the disruptionhouse.com. So you know, feel free to, uh, to get in contact and happy to pick up with any of your uh, network, any questions they may have on this. And uh, I'd just like to wish you well, Atara. I think it's a great thing you're doing here, uh, seeking out and, and uh, sharing knowledge and education um, with stakeholders. Because I think you know, the more that people are aware of these things, the, the, the more uh, we will change responsibly. Absolutely. Knowledge is power, right? <laughs> so, thank you again for coming out and um, have a good rest of your afternoon. Thanks very much, Tara. Take care.